This morning we will be dealing with the eleventh in a series of sermons on the whole counsel of God. For the past several weeks we've been laboring with the subject of the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. Today we want to deal with the subject of the relationship between faith and obedience, and we'll be answering the question of what do these scriptures principally teach us. If the Bible is the inspired word of God, and if it does contain an authority which reaches into all areas of our life, then just what do these scriptures principally teach, and what would they have us to know? And the answer to this question is this. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires out of man. Now, this involves the question of why have you put faith and obedience together, and yet at the same time we have put faith before obedience. If the Bible primarily teaches what man is to believe concerning God, and then what the duty is which God requires out of man, then why have we placed faith before obedience? And the answer is simply this, and it's very, very important, because faith is the vital principle from which all true obedience flows. And no man can perform any of his duties aright in a state of unbelief. Now, someone might object here and say, now, just a minute, preacher. Do you mean to tell me that if I do not believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven, that I cannot perform my duties before God in a right and acceptable fashion? And my friend, the answer that comes, comes not from the lips of this preacher. This answer did not originate in the mind of this speaker, but it comes from the words of Christ himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, there's a reason why a person must have faith in God, that is, the God which is revealed in the Bible before he can perform his duty in an acceptable fashion to God. And this is found in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and verse 6. If you would, please turn there with me for our text this morning. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and verse 6, we read these words. But without faith it is impossible to please him, speaking of God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now here the statement is plain, that anyone who does not have faith in the God as revealed in the Bible, it is an impossibility for that person to please the God which is revealed himself in the Bible. Because before a person can come to God, that is, perform his duty which God requires out of him, He must first of all believe that God exists, that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. 
In essence, then, before you and I can perform any act that is acceptable in the sight of God, we must first of all be in a state of saving faith. That is, a belief in the personal existence of God as he has revealed himself in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the person of Christ that we find recorded in the pages of the Bible, revealing all of his mighty acts and his wonderful person. So no one can rightly approach God while he is in a state of unbelief toward God's Son. Now let's look at this. He says that he that cometh to God must believe that he is. That is, he that would serve God, he that would perform his duty in coming and submitting himself to God, must first believe that God is. The person must have some knowledge of God or of the person of whom he's placing his faith in. Now, that is why we labor so urgently as ministers and as teachers of God's word, that we might be enabled to know what kind of a God the Bible speaks about. You see, beloved, it's one thing to talk about God, and it's another thing to know the God of the Bible. That's why if we do not accept the God of the Bible, or the Bible rather, as the authority of God, then we're going to find ourselves worshiping a God of our own conception, which in essence amounts to idolatry. So before a person can be pleasing in God's sight, before they can come to him, they must know who he is and what kind of a God he is and what he asks of man to do. They must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, this sets forth the duty that God would have of those that would serve him, that God rewards them according to the duty which they perform. So the essence of our statement is this. Now, listen carefully. No man, woman, boy or girl can perform a duty acceptable in God's sight while abiding in a state of unbelief. That is, if you have never placed faith in the God of the Bible as revealed by the authority of his word, then all of the actions which you perform will fall short of finding an acceptable place with God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, some might say, now, I just don't know about that. That's pretty narrow. That means that if a person isn't a Christian and doesn't believe in the Son of God, then they have no access to God. Don't you think that's a little narrow preacher? Well, I didn't write the book, you see. So it's not a conception, or my conception, whether it's narrow or not. Jesus, by the authority given him from the Father, says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, beloved, we must deal with that. And if that be authoritative, we must subject ourselves unto those authoritative words. There is no action that God can accept as righteous and good from a person who has never accepted or submitted themselves in saving faith to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself on our behalf. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this is the main essence of what the scriptures teach.
What we pull out of the Bible is this. It reveals us who God is and what God would have man to do. Now turn to John chapter 3, verse 36. I invite you to concentrate upon this verse. It's a very important verse which shows forth what a man must be in a state, in a saving relationship, personally, with the God of the Bible, before his actions can be accepted by the God of the Bible. We read in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, that's a very profound statement when you begin to analyze it. He that believeth on the Son. Now, no one from this statement can truly serve God without believing in the Son of God. In John 3.36, this word believeth comes from a word that means to trust or rely upon. When the Bible speaks of believing, it means to put one's trust in or a reliance upon another person or an object. And so we're talking about he that believeth on the Son, he that trusts the Son for whatever the Son has done, he that would rely upon the Son for his own salvation. The Bible says he is presently a possessor of everlasting life. He that believeth upon the Son before any other action then can flow in acts of duties performed toward God. They cannot be accepted until one be in a right relationship with the Son of God. Let's look at the next term. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Now, some may still object and be thinking on this line. Well, I don't have to believe on the Son as long as I'm obedient to the rest of the duties that God has sent for me to do. Just as long as I'm good to my fellow man, as long as I don't wrong him, that's all that God will require or expect out of me. And you say, well, now that just settles it all. I don't have to believe on the Son as long as I'm obedient to God and carrying out His the rest of his will as to how I'm to treat my fellow man. Now let me show you something here. In what these two words, believeth not, really mean. They are two words in our English language, but they are combined into one word in the language that Christ spoke, epithio. And that word means unpersuaded or, now listen, disobedient. Now the word epithio means disobedient. And that's the word that's translated, believeth not. Now let's look at that. You say, well, I don't have to believe in the Son as long as I'm obedient to God. But God won't let you get by with that. For the very term, believeth not, means an act of disobedience. That is, he that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, but he that obeyeth not, believeth not, epithio. He that obeyeth not the Son hath not life. That is, by not believing, you have already disobeyed God. You just can't get by. Now, you say, is that really the case? Is that really what Christ meant? Well, let's look at how he used these words elsewhere in the Bible. This one word, epithio, 
which is translated here, believeth not. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, this word is translated, quote, If any obey not the word, apithio, if any apithio the word, if any obey not the word. Now then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, we read, Which sometime were disobedient. That word that's translated disobedient there is apithio. The same word which is translated believeth not. So in other words, the same way used here, the same word which is used here, he that believeth not the Son is already disobedient before God. In First Peter chapter 4 verse 17, them that obey not the gospel. Now notice that. He that obeys not the gospel, he that believes not the gospel, that's the same word that Jesus used here in believeth not. Them that obey not, them that believe not. Now these Jews, which Jesus was addressing, felt that as long as they were obedient to the revealed will of God, which he had given them in his law, that they did not need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so they felt, we're not disobedient, we're obedient to what God has revealed. And yet Jesus would say, if you do not believe in the Son of God who has come, you are already in a state of disobedience, and presently you're under the wrath of God. So without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now that takes care of those around about us who would say, well, everybody's got their own way to heaven. You go your way and I'll go my way. Beloved, I'm glad to be able to say that it's not the Baptist way or the Methodist way or the Presbyterian way or the Catholic way, but it is the Jesus way, beloved, and you do not go to heaven around him. And we're not presenting to you a church or a system of laws, of do's and don'ts. We're presenting to you the authority of Jesus Christ and who he claims he is. And he claims that before anyone can be in a right relationship with God, the God of the Bible, he must first of all be in a right relationship with the Son of God, as revealed in the Scriptures. He that would believe not is already a disobedient servant of God. He has no part in God, and he has not obeyed the gospel, his primary duty. So the primary duty of man since the fall is to acknowledge his sinfulness and believe or trust the gospel. Now some might ask, well, what does the Bible teach what man's duty is? What is man to do? All right, the Jews ask that same question. Turn to John 6, verse 28. Now remember, we're dealing with religious people. We're not dealing with the down and outers, the so, but we're dealing with the so-called respectable people in their community. And they wanted to know what they should do to be pleasing to God. So they asked Christ a question one day. In John 6, 28, they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? That is, what is our duty? that you say God is asking of us. What is it that God would have us to do? Now, I want you to notice that the answer which Jesus gave to the unbelieving Jews. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. 
this is your duty. This is the essence of man's duty now because man has fallen into sin. This is what God acknowledges that man is to perform. They said, what shall we do then? And Jesus said, this is the duty what God would have you to do, that you believe on him whom God has sent. So the essence of all the teaching of Scripture now is this, that since the fall of man, we have been constituted sinners. It is our duty before God to enter into a saving relationship through faith or a reliance upon Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Now, this is the very essence of our duty. And the Jews, of course, they didn't accept that. They wouldn't accept that this was what God would have them to do, and they rejected it as foolishness. Now, let's show you another example of this. Go back into the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, chapter 5 and verse 2. And let's look there at a man who was confronted with what God would have him to do. And let us look at his reaction as to how he performed his duty. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he issues an ultimatum, let my people go. Now, I want you to notice very carefully what Pharaoh's reaction was. Verse 2 of Exodus chapter 5. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord neither will I let Israel go. Now, give me your attention for just a second as we try to labor in putting these things together. Pharaoh, because he was ignorant of who God was, was unable to do his duty before God. Now, do you see that? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And do you know, beloved, what many people, why many people will not submit themselves unto God today? Because they don't know who God is. They've never had a revelation of him as given in the pages of this book. You go out on the street today, any city, and take a survey. Get your little chart out. Start asking some people as they walk by, who is God? Can you tell me some things about God? You might be astonished at some of the reactions, some of the answers that are given. Most people conceive of God as some type of a God who's so loving he never harm anyone. And that God exists strictly for our happiness and to take care of the problems of man. That God is some type of a great big gas station, and every time man runs out of gas, then man can run to that station and get filled up again. You start talking with the average man in the street and his conception of God, and it reveals one thing right away. He is not familiar with the God that has revealed himself in this book. And it is no wonder, then, why he does not submit himself unto this God. We have pastors today that are beating their brains out, trying to figure out why they can't get their people to be obedient to the things which God has set forth in the books, because their people don't know the God that's in the book. Who is this God that I should serve him? I know not the Lord, therefore I'm not going to let Israel go. Because I don't know who God is, Moses, I don't believe that what you're telling me is God's duty, which I should perform. See the correlation between the two? Pharaoh could not perform his duty because he was ignorant of who God was. 
And that is why we're going to attempt in the next several weeks here to labor in God's book to try to review and see who the God of the Bible really is and what kind of a God he is. Now, what is the application which we can make of this? What's the significance of this teaching of the relationship between faith and obedience? We've already dealt with some of you perhaps here today, and you have a hope that you're going to make it all right without, with God, rather, apart from being found in the blood of Jesus Christ. My friend, that's a false hope. That's a false hope. That's not just some conception of mine. That's the teaching of God's word. No one can be accepted into the portals of glory apart from being clothed in the precious righteousness of the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you in that blood this morning? Or are you standing in your own rags of self-righteousness? But there's another application here I would like to make, and that is this. That in your dealing with other people, or our dealing with other people, we must deal with them as individuals, not as mass animals leading them to a slaughter. Have you ever been to a stockyard and watched them slaughter the cattle? They do not regard one beast from another, because they have one purpose of what they're going to do with that beast. And, beloved, the great tragedy that is taking place in our modern evangelism is that it treats everybody as a mass. I would be deceiving you if I gave you the impression that everyone in this audience this morning has the same degree of the knowledge of God. You don't. And therefore, I cannot call everyone to the same commitment, because you have not advanced yet in understanding to where you have been enabled to commit yourself unto the duty which God is calling you to do. Many pastors today preach a 10 or 15 minute sermonette and then call upon all their hearers to perform the same duty everyone alike. Oh my, what lack of understanding this reveals. There are young boys and girls here that have not received the same knowledge of God that some of you have which have been in the Lord for many years. This is not only true of Christians, but it's true of non-Christians. You go out into the street. And you will find that some people will have a little more knowledge of God than others. And some may be entirely ignorant, just like Pharaoh, and say, who is this God? But modern mass evangelism assumes that all people already know who this God is. Now, I want to give you three illustrations of this, quickly. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And here I want to show you how the inspired apostle dealt with one man who was called the Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16, they were singing in the jail at midnight. And we know from the text that the jailer called and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gave him the most simple answer you will find anywhere in the pages of God's writ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But I want you to notice that God, through the Holy Spirit, had already brought this man to inquire as to what his duty was. And Paul told him right then and there. But we make a great mistake as preachers, as teachers, as soul winners, when we go out and try to tell everyone in a mass that the very first thing they must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because the mass of them do not even know who the real Lord Jesus Christ 
really is. Before we are ever to call them to a commitment unto the performance of their duty, they must first of all be instructed as to who the person is and what their duty is which they are perform, to perform to that person. In Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 2, we see Paul going into a Jewish synagogue. We read, And Paul, as his manner was, went unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and have risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ Messiah. Now, you see how he dealt with these people? He didn't deal with them initially the same way he dealt with the Philippian jailer. He went and he said the Messiah must die and rise again. And this Messiah is Jesus whom I am preaching unto you. Now, do you see what he did? He took those unbelieving Jews and showed them who the Son of God was And then he told them what their duty was. What were they to do? Verse 4, some of them believed. Now, do you see that? Paul took them from where they were to the same place or brought them to the same place where the Philippian jailer was. But the Philippian jailer was already prepared in understanding before Paul told him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, let's look at the unbelieving Gentiles in the same chapter. Does Paul start with the Scriptures with the unbelieving Gentiles? No. With the unbelieving Jew, he takes the Word of God. But now then, let's look at how he deals with the Gentiles on Mars Hill. The Gentile doesn't have the Bible. He's not like the Jew. He's not acquainted with the Old Testament law or will of God. So we read in Acts chapter 17 and verse 22, quote, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, where did Paul start with these unbelieving Gentiles? Notice, he started with the God that made the world and all things therein. Now, do you see that? He didn't have to start there with the Jews. They already knew that. But with the Gentiles, he had to start with God as a creator. Now, where does he take these people that had never been exposed to the Bible? He takes them back to the creation, and he explains that because there is a creation here, there must be a creator. And that creator has created all men. And that is the result of that he is a ruler over all men. And not only that, but that Creator has sent His Son into the world, and His Son has died, been buried, and risen again. And now we read in verse 30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Now, do you see what He did? 
He took them from where they were in the knowledge of God. Where were they? They were ignorant of the God of the Bible. And he brought them down to the point where they were performed to perform their duty. And what was that? They must repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the wisdom in it? To the Philippian jailer who was already seeking the way, he said, believe. To the unbelieving Jews, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he told them, repent and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. With the unbelieving Gentile, he takes them all the way back to the creation and shows that there must be a creator. But you will notice this as we summarize and bring this message to a conclusion. That wherever they were to start with, Paul always brought his hearers to this one point. Before you go any further, you must be in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because he is the Messiah. Now I want to address you that are church members here today. You say, Pastor, I've been a member of this church for 20 years. All right, that's good. But I want to go back to something else. Before you ever became a church member, did you enter into a vital, saving relationship with Christ through faith and reliance upon him? If you haven't, my friend, then all of what you've been building upon is but a great big foundation of disobedience. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You say, well, Pastor, that's just pretty rough. Yes, the Jews had it pretty rough in dealing with the words of Christ. And that's why they picked up stones and tried to stone him. Because in essence, he was saying to them that all of what you've been doing is vain. Unless you repent and put your faith in the one whom God has sent to be a propitiation or mercy seat for your sins. Beloved, some of you may have wondered why they did crucify this one who had walked in the midst of them, who healed them, who gave them the blind sight. Why would they do that to such a man? And the answer is simply this. They could not endure the teaching when he would say that without me ye can do nothing. He stripped them of all their self-righteousness, of all their vainglory and their religious acts and their acts of righteousness toward their fellow man, which they gloried in. And Christ stripped them of all their religion, of all their churchanity, and they were left naked. And they said, there's only one thing to do with this man. Let's put him on a cross. What will you do this morning with this man, Christ Jesus? If you study the Bible, you will not study it long before you will see this conclusion coming out over and over again. You must repent, repent, and trust the one whom God has sent to be a mercy seat for sinners. What will you do with Jesus today? Will you do what the Jews did with him and reject him because of who he is and therefore neglect your duty? Or will you willingly today embrace him as your Lord and Savior of your life? What will you do with this man which is called Christ? Let's stand together.